Please turn with me now to the New Testament and to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, beginning in verse 20. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And you will not see it. They will say to you, look here, or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first you must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank. They married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop And his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinded together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken, and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? And so he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, at every point we need your help. We need your help simply to do the ordinary vocations that you have given to us. And Lord, more so we need your illumination the power of your spirit that we might understand the word of God. Otherwise, Lord, we know it will do us no good. But, Lord, all the more when we come to parts of your word that are harder to understand, which we know that many have misunderstood, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you and your goodness, you and your mercy, you and your grace would grant us through the power of the Holy Spirit to know these things truly, and, Lord, that they would profit us, that they would be a blessing and use to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we come to the last few verses in Luke 17, and in it we come to some fairly unpopular material. That's because, as many of you will know, this here in these last few verses, 34 to the end, 37, this is the classic text for the Left Behind series of books and movies, you know, in which all the Christians mysteriously and suddenly disappear, and the rest of the people, the rest of the population are left to figure out what's going on in the midst of the tribulation before the end. But, in, you know, the, the idea of buses crashing because the, the driver has been taken away and airplanes and, and likewise. But just because something is abused does not mean that we should stop using it altogether. 
Because if we had to do that, if we had to stop using a part of Scripture just because someone has abused it, well, we wouldn't have anything left. There would be absolutely nothing to preach because, unfortunately, it's all been abused. And anyhow, while the idea of a, what's called a pre-tribulation, meaning before a great tribulation and a pre-millennium rapture is, is wrong, a sudden separation between believers and unbelievers, that is absolutely true. And that is what the, the Bible, all of Scripture, as you put it together, that's, that's, the, that's the absolutely consistent picture that there will be such a separation. Not that some will be left behind only to face the tribulation and still have the opportunity for salvation, but rather that on the last day some will be taken up to meet the Lord and others will be left behind to face immediate and eternal judgment. And it is actually this true doctrine that is even less popular with the world. The world wishes that there was another sort of thing. If they happen to get it wrong, it's no big deal because they always have then another chance. And that time they'll know it's true. Because the Christians who might have been witnessing to them, they're dis- they've disappeared. Now they know what they're saying is absolutely true, and now they have the chance to get it right. It's worse than that. It's worse than that. When the end comes, there's no second chance. But I would say that this material here, this text, is, is not actually terribly comforting for Christians either. Because Jesus is speaking of people who are working together and people who are even living together, people in close relationships, and one of them is taken and one of them is left. It's not terribly comfortable. To add to it is that very, very obscure reference in the last verse of the chapter, verse 37, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And if you put all those things together, I must say that we would be tempted simply to pass all of this by and move on to the next chapter. Well, three things to say in reply to that as an apology even for the sermon. First of all, we know from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means that if we don't get the whole counsel of God, if we don't get all of scripture, including this, somehow we are less well equipped for the good works that God has called us to. We must preach this. Secondly, Jesus says this truth, the fact that two will be together, one will be taken, the other left, more than once. He repeats it. We listen to every last word that he says, but when he repeats himself as he does here, we take it all the more seriously. We need to listen. And thirdly, I would just say, I would observe that sometimes it is by struggling through things that we find difficult that we learn the most important things. Okay? So we're going to preach this sermon, and it's called The Great Separation. And I have three points. The first is those who work together, separated. Secondly, those who live together, separated. And thirdly, the vultures will gather by the body. So the great separation. And the first point is those who work together, separated. Verse 35, two women, it says, will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. 36, two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. Left. These are examples of common occupations for men and women, both back then and even now. Uh, preparing food, more typical of, of women, thus it is in the feminine in the text, and working in the field, more typical of men, and it is in the masculine. 
Now, I would say also this is a reminder then of the suddenness of the, return of, of the return of Christ because people are going to be in the midst of whatever they're ordinarily doing. That's what Jesus has been saying all along in the whole thrust of this passage. The question is, you remember the question back, to, back in verse 20. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation." He goes and says, first of all, the kingdom of God is, is right now growing as it is within you. As the word of God comes to, to fertile ground in the hearts of believers. And as, therefore, the kingdom is being built up, the, the church is being built up. We know that the kingdom is already present. But his return, it happens at a day and an hour that no one knows. And so people will be doing all their ordinary activities. They will be marrying and giving in marriage. They will be buying and selling. All the rest of these things will be true. And here it says they will be working at their normal occupations when the end comes. And so here in this example, in our first point, these are co-workers. At the very least, they are co-workers, but probably more than that because, of, of course, even now, but especially back then, those who worked together were very often related, part of the same extended family, if not part of the same close family, working in the family home, the family farm, the family business. But the teaching is that one will be taken and the other will be left. And let's be really clear what that means. For the believers, that's what this, let me explain what that means. It's from 1 Thessalonians 4.15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, because there will be such people, there will be those alive at the coming of the Lord, and those who remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, meaning those who have already died. You can't call it death exactly, because if you're in Christ, there is no real death, so this Bible speaks of it as being asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Okay, that is the taken, the one taken. That's what it's speaking to. Gathered up to be with the Lord in the air when he returns. And what about those who are left behind? What is their situation? What is that speaking of? What is the reference there? Well, that's maybe in Revelation 6.15. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, a people of every rank and degree in society, they hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For his, the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? He's coming to, to enact judgment upon the unbelieving sinners, and the day of his wrath has come, and they will be left behind to face that day. Now these two, the ones that we have that are working together, these are not criminals like the cross. Interesting, isn't it? There's the two criminals. One was taken and the other left. They're not even criminals. These are upstanding citizens going about their work. And one is taken to be with the Lord and the other is left to face his wrath. Those who work together are separated suddenly at the end. But that's not it. Secondly, we come to those who live together separated. 
Going back now in the text in verse 34, I tell you in that night there will be two in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Now, first of all, if we learn from the first point that life is simply carrying on until Christ returns, people in their ordinary activities, we learn from this that we don't know whether it's day or night. Because in verse 13, it's in that day. Oh, sorry, verse 31, it's in that day. And now in verse 34, it's in that night. Well, of course, that only makes sense because that's the world as it is. Right now, they're on the other part of the other half of the world. It's night and it's day here. And Christ returns instantaneously. Then, of course, in some places it'll be day and other places it will be night. But we learn something else here as well. The idea is like what, is, is what we find in, in verses 35 and 36. But here it's, it's worse. Because they're not just working together. They're actually living together in the same bed. Now, the, the word men, by the way, where it says two men, that's supplied. That's in italics. Children, have you noticed that that's in italics? It's a good thing to take a look at your Bibles and look down and notice. Whenever you see something in italics, that means it's not really there in the Greek text, but we kind of assume it or it's implied. And here, here it's speaking of two men in the same bed. Well, actually, all it is is uh, two people, one of whom is a man. And it's more than likely that it's a married couple, right? Now, one thing is for certain, whether they're a married couple or not, they're certainly not strangers because that kind of a situation implies a close personal relationship. And where living quarters are more cramped than they are here, then it may be other sorts of family members uh, and, and so forth. Well, the point is they live in very close proximity, in a close relationship, and to any observer there is No difference in the state of those two people. There they are, they're working together, and now here they are, they're living together, they're even in the same bed together. No difference. They look the same, doing the same job, living in the same place, nothing to distinguish them at all, and yet at the end their fate is utterly 180 degrees apart, miles apart from one another, could not be any more different. One brought lovingly into the presence of of their Savior, the other one left for destruction. I'll say more, but let us be clear of this one thing, that no amount of just being together, physical proximity, being under the roof of of this church, of living in the walls of a covenant family even, will save you. Jesus, you see, he's, he's omniscient. He knows. He's speaking as one who himself is coming. He's not guessing about it. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He's looking into the future to the day of his return, and he is telling us something. You know what he's telling us? It's going to be a common sight to see this separation. Not an uncommon one. A common sight to see the separation of friends and of family on that day. He can see it in his mind's eye. Two of them there together working. One taken, the other left. Two of them even in the same bed. One taken, the other left. They're separated. Well, those who work together are separated. Those who live together are separated. Thirdly, let us say that the vultures will gather. Because the disciples are looking for some kind of clarification. They don't understand all of it. And they ask the question in verse 37. They, they said to him, where, Lord? And we need to understand something of the question. 
And the most straightforward way to understand it is simply where, they're asking, where is this phenomenon, this thing that you're talking about, where is it going to happen? And whether the disciples really understood everything, all that he was talking about or not, this is the question that Jesus will answer. This situation that you're speaking about, whereby there are two people together, and one is taken, the other left, where is that going to happen? Right? So that's the question. And the answer is, wherever the body is there, the eagles will be gathered together. Now, just a note on the text. The word here usually means eagle, but it could also mean vulture. And again, children, I hope you understand the great difference between those two things. In this context, we know that eagles are not carrion eaters. They don't go eat the bodies of dead things already, right? In fact, so much so, they're really hard to keep in captivity. You can't just feed them stuff. You have to give them some sort of live animal to chase after, or they'll starve. So we can be certain that it's not an an eagle, right? Instead, we're speaking of vultures, right? And these vultures, wherever the body is, there the eagle will be gathered together. And so Jesus is speaking very proverbially, speaking of it as a proverb, the idea of vultures gathering together around a carcass, just, just as we see. Maybe a little bit less commonly here, but in warmer climates like where I grew up in Florida, that is extremely common. A deer on the side of the road, you better believe the vultures will be there. And, you know, as a little kid, I used to wonder, who told the vultures to get there? Did they have some sort of sign? Did they have some sort of communication? How did they know all to descend upon this this dead deer? They somehow found it. It's an amazing thing. In fact, if you were looking for dead deer or something like that, your best guess would be to simply follow the vultures because somehow they know exactly where they are. Now, we understand God has set them up to do this. They actually circle around looking for things and smelling for things. And God has enabled them wonderfully to be able to find this in a, in a short amount of time. But what I want to say is that they will find their way there. Okay? They will certainly do that. Genesis fifteen eleven. by the way. If you didn't know it, it's in Scripture. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. All right? They were freshly dead, and yet those vultures came right away. Now, what does that mean? What does this proverb mean? What is Jesus trying to say when he answers the question in such a way? Well, it certainly means that wherever they are in the world, God's salvation will find them. If you're a believer, don't worry about that. Wherever you are, on day or night, God's salvation will find you. And likewise, God's judgment will find the sinner. That much is certain. Those, those, those unbelievers may say, fall on us mountains, but it's not going to help them. Because wherever in the world that they are, these things will find them out. But what else could it be beyond that? What else could be this body? Well, maybe it's the body of Christ. Maybe that wherever the true body of Christ is, there will also be the counterfeits that have come as vultures to the true thing. It's certainly clear from the parable of the wheat and tares, and I'm going to read that to you. This is the parable of the wheat and of the tares in Matthew 13, 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Okay, tares are, are, are weeds, children, among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. And the servants of the owner came and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? 
question, what kind of seed were you using, Lord? Because there's all these tares that came. They must have come from somewhere. He said to them, no, an enemy has done this. The servant said, well, do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, no. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. So let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat to my barn. See how that goes? It's teaching all the same thing. They're together up until the very end, and some will be gathered into the, carefully gathered into the barn and others for the fire for destruction. And the enemy, you see, intentionally, he goes to wherever Christ has sown the true seed. It's not scattered throughout the world randomly. He is going to the place where Christ has sowed the true seed, and he sows tares among them. That's Satan. He's doing that. And the result of that sowing is that there will always be tares next to true wheat. And they are so close and sometimes so indistinguishable that the Lord cannot even allow his servants, which probably means the angels, to pull the tares up. And what that means is that this will not be an isolated incident. This will be a common sight on the last day. Or that All around the world there will be a sudden parting between the co-workers, between the friends, between the family members, those who share the same bed. There will be a parting. Because wherever the true is, there are the false. The vultures will be found among the tares. The great separation is coming. There will be a great separation. And how do we apply that to ourselves? Christ is coming. And if we are to believe that the Lord's, uh, the Lord's last word in Scripture, he is coming soon. And our first application, therefore, is that you ought to make sure that you're not left behind. Pretty simple, right? That is the absolute clearest and most straightforward application of all these things. Please don't let it happen to you. Because when Christ comes, it will be too late to do anything about our state one way or another. But now is not too late. Now is the day of salvation. Now, let me say this. How thankful we are for God's covenant promises. We are a covenant church, a covenantal church, a covenantal denomination. But we should never think that mere proximity, some sort of loose association with true Christians, actually means that you're saved. And I don't mean at all to damage anyone's assurance. But if you had to take your pick, which one would you go with? I would say this. Better to doubt of your situation and be wrong about that than to presume about your situation and be wrong about that. Right? Because if you doubt of your situation and you seek rather to make it clear and sure, well, there's no, no real harm in the end. But of course, on the other hand, if you presume and you're those who sleep in Zion, as it said, and assume that everything is fine when it's not, then that's not a, per- a good situation. Now, how do you make sure? Well, first of all, of course, in the sense of putting your faith in Christ. Because, brothers and sisters, there is no past tense. Sometimes you meet Christians who their main thing that they want to tell you is how they, they raised their hand and walked an aisle 30 years ago. Well, that's wonderful. The question is not what happened 30 years ago. The question is what happens now. Do you right now believe? Are you now believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the only thing that matters. That he is the only thing that matters when he returns. Now, I don't mean to say that there's such a thing as truly believing in Christ and then later that not being. Of course, we know that's not true. 
What I mean to say is that if, you're, if you're, the main thing you're considering is an experience that happened in the past, rather than your moment-to-moment fact that you're clinging to Christ in faith, that is a problem. Embrace Christ. It's a great, it's a great gospel that we have. And now is the time. It's not an issue of, of, of the past. It's not an issue of, of other people's faith. It is of your faith. And it is right that you get that straight before the Lord. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and hang on to him. And there's no harm for the believer to do that, is it? Actually, it's a great pleasure to be reminded of that. And let's not forget, by the way, about Second Peter 1. So we're saying, let, let's make sure that you're not left behind in a sense of absolutely you embrace Christ no matter what's happened in the past. But let's not forget about Second Peter 1 where it says, make your calling and election sure. I'll read this at, at length as well. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten he was cleansed from his old sins. Now, here it is. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble. Do you see that? To make it sure. To make it sure. And all these things you add to the faith that you have, you add all these other things and you make it sure. What it seems to mean is that there, there are believers, potentially, who can be forgetful and short-sighted. And the problem is it's very hard for them or for anyone else to really know what side they're on. This vast chasm, yes, it separates those who are, are brought with Christ and those who are left behind. It's a vast chasm. But the problem is you can't tell which side they're on. You know, here's the illustration. The illustration is a yellow line at train stations. You know, the only thing that matters is whether you actually get run over by the train or not, Okay. But they still put this yellow line there. They still put it. And it is possible that people can cross over that yellow line and get really close to the tracks. Maybe a child, maybe your child can do that, and maybe they'll live. But I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, everyone's having a heart attack while that's going on. The, the train is coming. The engineer is, is going to be frightened. The conductor is going to be frightened, the, the people around them, and certainly the parents are going to be really frightened because they don't know what is going to happen. That's why they put the yellow line there. Brothers and sisters, children, if you're outside that yellow line, please, I beg you, come back. Come back on this side of the yellow line. Make your call and election sure. All those things that he mentioned. Add to your faith, virtue. Yes, you have faith. Praise God. Do you want to make your calling and election sure? Here's how you do it. You add to that faith, virtue. It doesn't save you anymore. The only thing that matters is whether you're run over or not. But it certainly helps me if you add to that faith, virtue. And if you add to that virtue, knowledge. You care about the the, the word of God. You care about theology. And to knowledge, self-control, and the self-control of perseverance, and the perseverance, godliness, and the godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, love. And that helps you, and that helps me, and that helps everyone around to see you're on this side and you're safe. Make your calling and election sure. Make sure you're not left behind. 
Secondly, another application to all this is witness to those nearby. So I don't know about you, but I find this terribly disturbing. This idea that there are people with whom maybe I'm working with or you're working with, people that I'm living with, you're living with maybe, that will not be there in the end. Those who will be left behind for judgment, headed for an eternity in hell. That's frightening. That's terribly disturbing. I know good and well that if we were told, if we were given the news that judgment were coming tonight, we would be out there probably telling our neighbors. We'd be on the phone with our extended family. Only God can save people. We know that. But ordinarily, he uses us to do it. And there's one thing, of course, if we've already done all that we can, we've said it, we've made it clear, they don't want to hear it, that's, that's, you know, if that's true, you can say with Paul in Acts 20, Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. But what if we have shunned? What if we have shunned to declare? We've declined to say a thing to them. Does it mean that possibly that's a problem to be addressed? Well, I I think that that's the application here as well. If indeed there has to be a separation from someone that you have been working next to at that moment, if indeed there has to be a separation of someone that you're living with, let it not be because you've never mentioned these things. Thirdly, we certainly pray for conversions. We, yes, we declare the word of God, but as I say, it is only God who gives salvation. It is only the Holy Spirit who brings people to conversion, only he who can make a dead heart to be alive. And we need to pray for that. Pray for the preaching of the gospel in this church. You know, we have such a great gospel, such a wonderful gospel, that Christ has died and he has risen, and all who believe in him are saved. It's the greatest news that we could possibly imagine. If anyone were making it up, we would not make it up as good as what it really is. In fact, the more you know about it, the better it gets. Pray that it would be clear, that it would be constant and fervent, but mainly that the Spirit of God would move greatly. You know, I don't know if any of you have read some of the the books or articles we sometimes have, maybe in Banner of Truth or some other books, and we read about revivals and we see how it was in those days. And it's so far from our experience now, right? But one thing we can be clear about is that any time that the Lord would so choose, he is able to bring sinners to himself. And whether it's in little dribs and drabs, as it is now, which we praise God for, or whether it's in greater numbers, the Lord is the one who does it. And we pray for him. That's all. I pray to him. We're going to come to this in, in, in the next chapter very soon about the fervency of prayer. But this is, this is an application here. Let's pray that the Lord would move greatly. Let's pray now. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are indeed thankful that this is the day of salvation. It's not the end yet. And every time that you speak a word of warning to us, a word of caution, Lord, we are thankful. And we pray that it would not fall on deaf ears, but rather, Heavenly Father, that we would act differently because we have heard these things. We would do something in the light of the fact that there will be this great separation from those who are otherwise closely associated nearby one another, in the same occupation, in the same household, in the same church, perhaps. Lord, we pray 
that we would make our calling and election sure, that we ourselves would grasp hold of Christ and make absolutely sure for ourselves and for everyone around us that we are his. Not in some sort of legalistic way at all. We don't earn our salvation, but Lord, you have commanded us to move on, to build on the foundation of faith, a life of knowledge and of holiness and of perseverance and of love, Lord. How indeed we pray that we would be more and more characterized by Christian love. And Lord, also that we would speak to those around us, knowing Heavenly Father that, Lord, it will be regrettable just how many have been in proximity with those who have the word of of life, and yet they remain in ignorance. Lord, we pray forgiveness for those whom we have not really declared the whole counsel of God in our private lives and our situations at work and neighbors and all the rest of these things. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd grant us a holy boldness. And Lord, in all these things that we would rely upon you and the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would do that which we are unable to do, to bring to saving faith those who are being saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.